Okay, okay, where are my notes? So, who wants to sing the theme song today? Shall it be you or shall it be me? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll get started. Did it? Gotta look up the notes. Did it? Ah. And we're back. Yes, friends, welcome back to another episode of Radio Moorpork, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, reviewing, rating, ranking, and generally rambling about all things Discworld, and this week, all things The Amazing Morris and His Educated Rodents. That is the book we are tackling today, and it will be tackled by myself, Colm, and my delightful co-host, Steve. I wasn't talking about you. Oh, sorry, yeah. Oh, that's the talking cat that you have on your shoulder, of course. Yeah, I yeah. beg your pardon. Yeah, um, uh, racking, I've got directing my thoughts inside my head. Do you call him yeah. Morris or Maurice? I always called him Maurice. Um, I call him Morris because the first time I did, I actually had heard this book, an audiobook before, read by Tony Robinson, and he called him Morris. But then I um I read that it was like he was named after a cat food that I think I remember for like seeing advertised at the time that would have been Maurice. Um, yeah. I don't so think that, it really matters. I think it's yeah. just like two different like pronunciations of the same name. But um, forgive. I hope you forgive me that I'll probably call him Maurice because it gives me a little bit of pressure because it reminds me of crazy old Maurice from the Disney movies. So, <laughs> no, that's um, okay. I'm so, sure this is a, like a, a really polemical issue between Discworld fans. So if this naturally. helps us stand on both sides of the fences, you know. But you hashtag know, li- t- Team Maurice will be like mollified <laughs> by you and hashtag Team Morris will be mollified by me. But you know the entire Discworld community is literally divided in half based on that tiny like oh, minuscule yeah. fact. You see it at all the conventions, like all the like ballrooms are split in half. It's just like, well, shocking. Yeah. I'm but, kind of um, worried about going to Worldcon in August in case like, I get beaten up by a bunch of like hardcore <laughs> Mauriceists. Oh, well, listen, I'll be leading the charge. I think I can offer you some protection, but only if you're <laughs> on, like, you know, Ankh-Morpork soil where, you know, diplomatically you can be protected. <laughs> well, I'm hoping this podcast, you know, brings the two communities together. This is essentially like the audio version of the Good Friday Agreement for a pronunciation disagreement in a young adult's fantasy book. <laughs> We we should okay before we get any more sidetracked. We should probably go over the actual plot of this book. Yes, so, yes, we should. So, yeah. um, as this the book starts out, it's it's kind of a retelling of um, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, basically a mm-hmm. kind of twisted version of that, in which um, a young kid who initially has no name is riding in a carriage with a cat and his educated rodents, the titular educated rodents of the title. And they go into, apparently they've been going to town, different, plenty of different towns, and performing uh, a certain service in which they pretend that the town itself is infested by a plague of rats. And after that, the kid offers his services to get rid of the rats by playing a pipe to lead them out into the, the river or the lake or whatever nearby. And they get paid, and then they move on to the next town. This is the initial setup of mm-hmm. uh, the book itself. And um, um, and at the start, they're uh, they're accosted by a highwayman, and the rats take care of him in in short order. They all go up his trousers, and that's sort of our introduction into uh, you know their I suppose like the formidable use of their intelligence in that way. But there, the rats are having second thoughts about the uh, about the I suppose the, the grift that they're 
themselves, uh, Morris the Cat and the uh, the Piper, who turns out to be called Keith later, are engaged in. So Morris wants them to keep up doing it, um, and he didn't, but he can't convince them otherwise. So he promises that the next town will be their last, you know, their their one big last score. Um, mm. And they go to a town called Bad Blintz, and it initially looked quite uh, prosperous. But mm. then when, when Morris and Keith are having a look around, they, they notice that there, there doesn't seem to be much food around. Um, the town like looks prosperous, but seems poor in weird ways. And instantly they see the rat catchers who come out and are um, holding up like what, what, what seem to be rat's tails in celebration of having caught more rats. And they get the impression that the town is already suffering from a plague of rats. Uh, but when they more closely investigate those so-called rat's tails, they turn out to be aglets. Yeah, uh, uh, things off the top of bootlaces. Their yeah. true purpose is sinister. At this point, uh, the plot sort of splits into two. So, on the one hand, we follow uh, the kid Maurice and the character of what is her name again? Militia. Uh, Militia. Yeah, uh, who catches uh, he? She catches Maurice in the act of talking. So uh, she basically technically holds them hostage because she wants to find out what exactly their deal is. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also pair off with the rats who are going about their business, whittling on things, uh, making it appear the entire town is infested with rats and generally just disarming traps all around the town to make sure that nobody uh, gets caught in any of them. And well, while the rat- they're doing this, they discover that there doesn't seem to be any actual rat- like rats in the town. There were them... Kiki's is the word they use to describe rats that, unlike them, uh, can't talk. Mm, uh, so, you know, right. what we think of as normal rats. And they, they find it a few, but, but not that many. And a lot of the traps seem quite old and disused. Mm. Um, and then uh, so eventually, when, when we, we're back with Melissa and, and Morris and Keith and um, Sardines, one of the rats gets caught uh, in Melissa's trap or almost does and Keith and Morris free him and then they kind of explain to Melissa what the, the situation is right. and at this point um, Sardines uh, tells them how they haven't found any rats and Melissa's shocked by this because as far as the, the uh, I suppose the official line in the town is that they're suffering from a massive plague of rats which has resulted in huge food shortages and so on and she's the mayor's daughter so I suppose she has a particular stake in this so Hor and Keith and Morris go to confront the rat catcher, or no, not, not confront them. They go to investigate their their HQ to see if they can uh, tell what's going on with this plague that's not a plague. And uh, while this is happening, when we cut back to the rats, so while they're in the middle of dismantling all the traps, we're also uh, look into the life of peaches and dangerous beans. Uh, dangerous beans being. Very unusual rat who was born after all the rats um, became intelligent. So he's always been an intelligent rat. He was never he never had this time when he was a kiki. But he holds a book called Mister Bunsey Goes on an Adventure in very high regard um, because it depicts all these animals wearing clothes and speaking to humans and basically showing animals and humans living in harmony. So the rats especially dangerous beings, but as a result, also most of the rats view this book as kind of, um, I don't know, a way of viewing how life should be for them. So they're basically, uh, the reason 
that they are working with Maurice with these plans is because they want enough money so that they can basically hire a boat, go to an island and live like live on this beautiful island completely in peace where they won't get caught, you know, be able to have, eat food all they want and basically just live in peace. So um, unfortunately, in the process of this, uh, they stumble across um, Keith and Maurice and Militia again. And at this around this point, Militia inadvertently reveals that Mr. Bumsy has an adventure isn't some like uh, prophesized text or anything like that. It's just a stupid children's book that doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. which sends Dangerous Beans off in a little bit of a rage. Um, yeah, he's, he's sort of at a loose end as to, uh, to what to do. And then at, at this time, then uh, Militia and Keith are caught by the rat catchers and Melissa, mm. who's really into her uh, stories, um, kind of tries to fit them into narrative convention and thinks that they must just be the henchmen for a, you know, a, a big boss, a man behind the curtain. Yeah. And uh, they turn out not to be, um, but uh, it, it turns out they're, bre- they're uh, breeding, they're faking the plague, so to uh, stealing most of the food themselves and selling it on. And then they're breeding the rats they've caught to um, get them to fight in like a like a uh, you know, kind of pit with dogs. And yeah. uh, Ham and Pork, the kind of old uh, leader of the rats, tries to attack one of them. And they end up catching him with, with the idea to put him uh, in against the dog because he's so tough and that they might win a bet. Um, so the other rats try and mount a rescue of him while he's in the, uh, while he's in the pit. Uh, and they're they're successful, but he's he's mortally wounded in the um, in the venture. And around this time, you start getting hints that like there's something more going on. Morris can hear a voice in his head that seems to be able to direct him what to do. Um, and and I think some of the rats are hearing it at this point too. Yeah, and it's very a very very sinister kind of voice that um, seems to suggest you know, a very, very dark presence, like, behind it. Um, causes, uh, we're given a lot of hints towards how terrible this entity is because uh, some of the rats uh, are become so scared that they lose the ability to talk. Yes, yeah. Um, and he re- the entity, whoever it is, reveals their name to be Spider, um, which is actually a little bit telling, but we'll get to that later. And around this point, we learn about the existence of Rat Kings, um, Militia goes into a little bit of detail uh, when the the rat catchers reveal uh, what rat kings are, and she kind of explains the concept further. It's the idea of a bunch of rats coming together. Well, there's two different explanations. The explanation first given, I think, by Militia is that um, a bunch of rats are born together in the nets, nests, and because all the dirt and the clay gets it hardens around their tails and just forces them all like to be stuck together yeah uh, but, but Keith kind of shoots this down because he says that rats nests are actually quite uh clean yeah and then and it, it turns out yeah, the other way is gill mm-hmm. the, the uh, rat catchers themselves make them by tying their tails together and uh they, they end up they end up um Keith and Alicia end up threatening the uh, rat catchers by uh, pretending they've poisoned them but they've actually given them a really powerful laxative yes, and getting yeah. them to confess to uh, to uh, their, I suppose, to sw- how they're swindling the town but at the same time they confess that one of them made a, a rat king mm. and uh, at this point now uh, Maurice has kind of run off in fear, tried to get away from the voice 
Mm-hmm. And um, afterwards, he finds uh, Dangerous Beans and Peaches, who, after they were, uh, they discovered that Mr. Bunsey Has an Adventure wasn't the text that they thought it was. They kind of ran, ran off just being general anger. Um, and they encounter the Rat King, Spider, uh, who basically tries to take control of Dangerous Beans because he recognizes he has a very progressive and intelligent mind. Um, yeah, he, he, he reveals his plan is essentially to stage a massive rat uprising against humanity. Yeah. And he feels like Dangerous Beans is of a mind in this because he too, as you said, like he, he's a different mind. He kind of sees a greater purpose for rats as well. But uh, obviously um, Dangerous Beans is a uh, greater purpose for rats and Spider's greatest purpose for rat, greater purpose for rats are uh, very much at odds. So Spider attacks him kind of like, like with a sort of mental um, projection. Yeah. And around this point, uh, Maurice, who has had pretty much all of his intelligence stripped away by this mental blast, reverts to a kind of very simplistic cat-like state and does what cats quite typically do, which is, you know, attack rats. So he launches himself at the tail of the Rat King and pretty much tears it apart, which fortunately breaks the spell. And following up with this, we're kind of brought up to the conclusion wherein um, when we go back to the surface away from the sewers, we discover that a separate uh, rat charmer has been called in, the actual Piper. And, uh, you know, apparently he's planning to charge Bad Blintz a small fortune for his services. And it quickly becomes apparent that they, even if they dismiss him and tell them they want his services, they'll still be bankrupt because simply the act of coming out will uh, cost them a small fortune. Uh, that's when Keith kind of sits up and says, I'll challenge you to a duel, basically, a rat charming duel. And he says that if he wins, uh, the rat charmer has to give him one of his, give him his flute. But if the rat charmer wins, he, oh, what was it he says? What was his terms? I think. Well, 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 if the rat piper wins, I mean, he gets what he wanted in terms of all the the money and so on. Oh, that's Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. But Anyway, in effect, uh, so Keith, uh, so the rat catcher plays his tune, but all the rats have stuffed cotton wool into their ears to make sure Mm -hmm. that they can't hear it. And so nothing happens, of course. And then uh, Keith plays his his flute and we see sardines tap dancing across uh, the courtyard. So he wins the bet because he charms the most rats. Um, So after this, he and the rat catcher have a little bit of a chinwag about the nature of rat catching and so on. But after that, uh, it's kind of revealed to the townspeople that all the rats are actually very intelligent. And Maurice acts as a kind of in-between between the rats and the townspeople and explains why having a plague of rats, in inverted commas, can actually be quite beneficial to the town. Yeah. They can use it to up tourism and like keep the other rats in check and so on. So um, that's pretty much what Finnick concludes the novel, them like working out this system of how like the rats and the humans are going to actually live in harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, pretty much everybody stays in the town except for Maurice who goes on to the next big, big thing. He looks for another kid to try and find their fortune and that kind of concludes the book. So I guess the main thing to ask to start things off is what did you think of it? Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure I, I as i said i had heard this one on a bridge audio before um 
And I was curious to to read it because it being the first explicitly YA book, and we we talked before about um, uh, like how you know Morris or Morris Mort and Equal Rights have um shades of YA about them and may have been marketed as such had they been released later. Uh, but I I remember I'd like this sort of it's how you, it's YA ness uh was very much something I was I was like wrestling with as I was reading it. I was like, what what makes this different? Why you know. Um, why write a story like this? Like, what? What do you? I suppose. What are you changing about it? What are the the limits or whatever? And I actually, I put out a uh, put out a call on uh, Twitter where I was just like, uh, you know, I said like, what marketing aside, what distinguishes YA from adult books? Uh, and our old pal Wizard of the White Tulip got back to me, and he was saying like, very tricky question. He said part of it is toning down adult themes like language and extreme violence but i don't think those are the defining features features um and he he said like uh like he brought like you're kind of placing restrictions on your creative process but sometimes that results in more um positive things uh like you see if you can't swear you come up with you have to come up with better insults if your villain can't use extreme violence they have to come up with another way to be wicked um and that that sort of idea jumped out at me because i mean this is something we talked about before when um I remember like, like me and you and our friend Michael having long talks about video games and I was saying how when like when they had less uh, technological capabilities again the 32-bit era the 16-bit era of video games they had to kind of find other ways of storytelling that were inherent to that medium beyond just like voiceover or FMV sequences that are essentially just like how films communicate things um, and I've often thought with like say mid to late 90s well no maybe like a lot of 90s music where you have the emergence of, of cds as the dominant form ahead of vinyl and vinyl had previously limited the amount you could have on an album and you have a lot of albums around that time that are maybe like 10 minutes too long because the band or the act is no longer limited and they're just saying oh yeah well you know whatever we'll throw that extra song in that they otherwise would have had to make the decision to cut out because they'd have to keep it to around 45 50 minutes uh, yeah, I still yeah. wanted to get a whole hog with a double album. Um, so I, I like with all that in mind, I was kind of reading it. And I was like, I want like what restrictions is Pratchett placing on himself here, and what what's it going to, what's it going to cut off, and what's it going to bring out? Mm. And one one thing I, I uh, like, it's obviously a lot shorter than the uh, rest of the Discworld books, and I, I remember thinking that like very early on you're kind of, you're given the whole premise of like, oh, they're like a Pied Piper grift where they go into towns and pretend to do the rock play. And I don't know if I was imagining it, but I felt like, you know, if this were a, a conventional Discworld book in tone and length, like, it would tease that out more, you know, like we wouldn't be told it immediately. Yeah. Um, but so like at, at first then when I was reading it, I was sort of... Uh, expecting a, a like just like disc world but simpler and shorter but i mean there's a lot of fun darkness here uh there's a very good really eerie atmosphere in the town when they first go there and they're trying to piece together you know there's something rotten at the heart of this but we don't know what it is um and and just the way it treats stories and the power of stories and people who believe in stories is interesting and particularly interesting with regard to some of the previous ones in that i think this has a much more uh skeptical or pessimistic view of the impact of stories in our lives than earlier discord books do 
which is interesting given that it's normally for for younger readers, you know. And as mm-hmm. YA go, like looking at this, I, I would think of it's it's on the the younger side of YA. It's kind of you know like, uh, like I don't know like ten to thirteen or something rather than um you know like mid teens, late teens kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. the whole like say you have Melissa who's really invested in um stories and narrative convention and whereas like kind of to an extent uh for Pratchett protagonists in earlier books knowing what kind of story you're in was this big advantage that helped you and made you uh, savvier when dealing with things when mm-hmm. horror it just sort of makes her deluded um and and towards the end and i think it's a really uh sweet moment i really enjoy her as a character but like it it, it feels like a, like a defense mechanism at the end you know when she's talking to keith and she's like oh i don't actually have two uh stepsisters and then she said oh but i have loads of friends you know yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and she's kind of trying to make friends with him and also, i I don't know whether this is down to just a short length and there's less i suppose less room for world building but it really feels like she's the only child in the town you know Right, um, yeah. Like, like there's, n- yeah, there's, there's no others that are gone into a detail. So she just feels like a really lonely character. Mm. Um, so again, uh, which is wonderfully um, engaging and evo- uh, evokes my sympathy, but um, again, makes that that her investment in storycraft seem like a defense mechanism. Like she has that great line about, um, yeah, she says, uh, "Well, I'll tell you something. If you don't turn your life into a story, you just become part of someone else's." And Keith says, mm. "And what if your story doesn't work?" She says, you keep changing it until you find one that does. And that seems quite an empowering uh, way to live, but it doesn't seem to be entirely the case with her. And then mm. you have the bit at the, the end when they're having the negotiations between the rats and the humans. And um, Dark Tan and the uh, the the mayor, uh, Melissa's dad, like, they're... Um, they point to kind of stories like stuff like Mr. Bunsey is very much like that's something for the little people, you know, whereas like us in positions of uh, leadership who have to make these difficult decisions and, you know, see the world with painful clarity. Like we, we, we can't be taken in by that sort of stuff, you know? Mm. Um, so in some ways, like it's, uh, you know, when you compare it to something like say Hogfather, which ends on this note of like like humans need stories, need stuff like the hug fatter to live to find any kind of meaning in in the like the blackness of existence. Uh, this is, I suppose, I don't know, maybe more like skeptical of the power stories. It's almost like it's something you graduate past on, you know, as you uh, um, reach a level of like emotional and intellectual maturity. Like you know, they're uh, they they give you a framework that you work with but then you progress past them yeah but i mean like um i i I read this a little bit differently i i kind of looked saw it as a bit of a a meta textual thing in that i saw this book the physical copy of like the amazing maurice was a little bit like the mr bunsey has an adventure thing Mm -hmm. um so at one point when um Obviously, after Dangerous Beans discovers that this is, oh, it's just a children's book, so it doesn't matter the way it did before. But much later in the story, uh, Peaches brings the book back and he just looked at it and says, oh, but none of it was real. And she says, well, maybe it wasn't real, but maybe it's like a plan. Maybe it's like a framework. So, yeah, that would tie into what you're saying and that, like, yeah, it is something that you can kind of use to guide yourself and then you move past it. But I don't necessarily see that as, you know a regressive thing per se. I thought more of like, 
if they can view Mr. Bunsey has an adventure in that sense within the text, then maybe we can view like, you know, the amazing Maurice and his educated Rodents in the real world in a similar sort of way, because I don't know about you. I don't know if you picked up on this, but one very strong theme that I found going on there was uh, the notion of immigration and accepting other cultures into yeah, your own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I was, I felt that was like almost overwhelming towards the end. That, I mean, that's just me personally, but um, I just found it really interesting that so. so you you were saying that like uh, what kind of restrictions is Terry Pratchett putting on himself by releasing a young adults uh, thing? Mm-hmm. I think you can view a book that way, but I think you can also view young adult novels as being more liberating because whereas when you're writing an adult novel, uh, you obviously are restricting your audience. But if you're writing a young adult novel, it's broadening your audience. It's not necessarily cutting off adults. It's just like expanding it so that it include more people. And in many ways, I think this is like a very, very political text based on the fact that he is directing it at a wider group of people. And, you know, it certainly was effective because this won like a good few awards when it was released as well. So I think a lot of people picked up on that. Yeah, but I, I don't know if I'd say it's it's theoretically broadening the audience. Like, um, I mean, you could as easily say if you're saying with a conventional like uh, adult Discworld novel that like say children will be less likely to to read it and uh adults or you know like older teenagers would you can easily say well like adults or older teenagers will be less likely to read something they see as uh, you know beneath them or or, or past them like i know I, i've said before on this and, and i kind of regret it although i'm looking forward to the uh, fresh experience when we get to these in the series in in the podcast but I like listened to the first We Free Men on audiobook and then sort of decided, like, even though I enjoyed it, oh, those young adult ones aren't for me because I'm not a child, you know. Um, mm. And I mean, like, I actually really enjoyed it. And uh, from all I've heard of the Tiffany ones, I'm really looking forward to uh, checking it out. But I mean, I, I don't think going down the young adult route necessarily broadens your audience. Like, you, it, it would vary from case to case, but I think you would as be, be as likely to lose adult readers who presume that, like, this is beneath them or this this one isn't for them as you would be to gain younger readers who are you know invited in i think it's it's i'm talking in general terms it's very different with something like this world where it has you know commands a, such a beloved following that people would just read them anyway you know because they're mm. like oh great another this world another terry pratchett but I, I i think in general it's not as if say you know i don't know you're like if if you begin writing a a, a book you, you don't necessarily know that if you make it young adult, you're like going to get younger people and older people on board, you know, as opposed mm. to like, if you're writing it as adult, you uh, likely just get an older audience, but you never know. But um, for let's just shell that for a time being and like talk about some of the other themes in it. Um, one thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting and it made it very interesting for me to go back to was the um, very eerie atmosphere that the book had. So I remember I, I read this once before years ago and I remember I've, I had this weird sense of like I kind of liked it but at the same time it was very off-putting and I couldn't really put my finger on why and I think it's just because this is a book that very much twists your expectations like I found this I find this book to be a lot more unsettling than most of if not all of the other Discworld books because the entire 
segment where um, the rats are like losing their minds and like uh, slowly reverting back to like the Kiki's and when we learn like about the existence of Spider uh, the idea of the rat catchers potentially being poisoned and like dying slowly it's all very very graphic and unsettling eerie and just a generally scary book it's a I, I I found that like kind of fascinating because you know this is what this is the, I think this is the actual first like I was looking through it and like even in the index like Eric I know has been uh, marketed as a young adult novel since but at least in this one it's not in in the bibliography like there's just a list of um Discworld books and like the first one to actually say for young adults is this one so I just found it really, really amazing that the first one that actually is directed specifically at young adults, for me personally, happens to be the most disturbing one. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's something Pratchett has, has mentioned before in the uh, Discworld series, like in, in Hogfather and stuff, and, and to a certain extent Tifa Time, when like Susan's justifying the uh, stuff she teaches to kids and how she teaches, she talks about how, like, you know, children love dark and scary stuff. Um it was certainly something like when I worked in a bookshop, I would forever be getting into like, oh, not arguments, but I'd be forever convincing well-meaning parents or like uncles or aunties who are like, oh, I want to buy a book for little Sean. But and I'd say, oh, what's he into? And, you know, they're telling me, I'd like, look, this one. They'd say, oh, is that not too scary? And I, I tell them like, no, children love being scared. It's true. And, uh, this was kind of my opinion, uh, having been a child. <laughs> Wait, what? No, You'd never I, told me that. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. Um, I I was for a bit last week, um, and then I got sacked as a child. Um, and but uh, they, some of them would just sort of take it that because I worked in a bookshop, I must be some expert at children's psychology, and they were like, "Well, okay, you know, if, if you say that." But I mean, I I regret no, I, I regret nothing. I I think yeah, I was one hundred percent right about it. It's like a. I know it's 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 like a rite of passage. It's like um, I, I got to get this a bit sooner than I uh, than I tend to. But there's a great part in the uh, book when after Dark Tan has had his near death experience and he's thinking about dangerous beings and how they need dangerous beings, and he says uh, he's a trap hunter. He goes ahead of us and finds the dangerous ideas and thinks about them and traps them in words and makes us safe and shows us the way through. And I I think that's wonderful. Like that kind of like. Dark Tan, the most practical and uh, capable and physical of the rats, being able to see the um, usefulness and I suppose the how like a sort of philosopher explorer like Dangerous Beans complements his role as like a physical explorer and leader, um, and and I sort of see like like children wanting to and and even young adults for that matter like people in there you know like teens wanting to scare themselves and push themselves as like with what they read and what they watch being sort of like the mental equivalent of when you're like a really young baby or toddler and you're doing stuff like you know putting things in your mouth to see whether what it feels like or like touching something to see whether it feels good and you're getting like a physical sense of the world around you and you know what hurts and what doesn't and you know what's kind of exhilarating and uh it, it, like yeah kind of children young people's like like uh desire to scare themselves I, I you know i'd start reading the same way um and that desire doesn't entirely die out either like you know lots of adults do it's true i mean we i think this is a discussion we actually had before when we were in college when we were talking about rolled Dahl books do you remember that like um i remember we were discussing like 
you know, just the ge- in general, I think this came up originally when we were talking about obviously grim fairy tales and that sort of thing. When you listen to like how absolutely horrific things are, and I think for both of us, this was something that was relatively common knowledge. A lot of people know that grim fairy tales are a lot more disturbing than like the way Disney portrays them, but. Afterwards, we started talking, yeah, but it's like that for a lot of books. Take, for example, Roald Dahl, which I think both of us read a lot as kids. And, you know, I never really, before that point, I'd never really thought of it, but much like, I never thought of Roald Dahl as being disturbing. But if you ever go back and like, I think the, I think we both quoted different examples. I think I quoted the, um, the witches. There's a point in it where uh, the boy in it is considering, he's trying to figure out how his grandmother lost her thumb because she kind of hints that uh, that was the last time she had a run-in with the Grand High Witch. And he starts visualizing all these terrible things that could be happening. The most vivid, the one that in my mind, is like, oh, what if like she jammed her thumb into a teapot and the steam like boiled away the tip of her finger? It's like, how horrific is that? And yet, it's just something that kind of got soaked up into my imagination. I thought, this is great. This is fantastic. I think... If I remember rightly, you mentioned um, a bit from Matilda about uh, the Trunchbull, like flinging uh, flinging that child out. No, I, I, oh, I, I, I do. I do remember um, watching Matilda in the cinema and uh, having to go outside that bit when they're in the they're in uh, Miss Trunchbull's house and what is it they're trying to like rob from her house and she's in and she's kind of she knows there's someone there and i remember watching the witches on like video or whatever or on telly as a kid and like having to hide behind the curtains you know but also loving it like you know loving like being really scared but wanting to watch it again and um, i always thought the most horrifying part about roald dahl and this sort of meets here is that he always presents these terrible things as the norm you know like usually with a lot of uh i suppose when, when we think of like a lot of say horror uh texts um, they present the, the element of horror as a, uh, a like a break or corruption of normality. You know, like you begin with normality and then you have the injection of horror. Like the monster comes along, the serial killer starts killing people, the um, whatever. Some someone brings home some cursed artifact and the place gets haunted. But Roald Dahl usually presents it as if oh, this thing has just been happening. It's been a part of life for years. And the only difference now is you notice, like the start of the BFG, when he's talking about like the giants just scooping people out of their beds. And he doesn't describe it like it's just recent development. It's it's just that like, oh, yeah, giants have always like eaten children. Um, and likewise with the witches, it's the same. Like they've always been around. Um, and, and there's like that element of horror is sort of here because you, you have the uh, your protagonists in the clan and Keith and Morris dropping into a town that has kind of like had this uh, eerie conspiracy and this rotten core and in the kind of a figure of spider at the heart of it for some time you know and and they're uh yeah like did the, the difference here is day and by proxy we as readers are kind of now realizing this and seeing it for the first time it, it's not quite as uh um, I don't know, chilling, it's just rolled out describing like, like oh, all over the world, children are eaten <laughs> every night, but uh, but it's it's quite quite effective nonetheless. I wonder if uh, that kind of practice in writing though is like, is it a good healthy thing to have for young adults? Because I've been trying to, I've been thinking about it and wondering like, what kind of psychological effect does this have on children? Like to have, you know, 
this kind of horror represented as very much everyday standard. Like, because on the one hand, you could look at it two ways. On the one hand, you could think, oh, so this is like prepping children for prep, prepping children for the idea that you know horrific things happen in day to day life, and like that's just the way it is. But on the other hand, by presenting it in day to day and not like you know enshrining it in like this you know horrific manner it might make them think you know it might make them numb to it you know whereas if they read like a horror book where it's presented it's like oh my god this is a terrible thing and it shouldn't be happening um rather than doing that it's just kind of like here's a terrible thing it's happening all the time maybe they're just kind of very dismissive of it and thinking that's just the way life is well, I mean, I, I think in, in those Roald Dahl examples I've cited and, and here as well, like while the horror is presented as ongoing and, you know, existing before the beginning of the book, the resolution of the book is to stop it. Like it's presented as no less horrible for the fact, even more so, in fact, for the fact that it's been happening for a long time. You know, mm. it's not mm. as if, oh, this is the way of the world and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, you know, the BFG ends with them trapping all of the other giants and ending this, the witches ends with them. Uh, whatever, turn all the witches into mice in the hotel and then going off to stop the other witches and this ends with them, you know, kind of reaching at least a, a resolution in this town before there can be this, like, any more cruelty to rats or this, this massive rat uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, had, had a great quote about when he, he talked about his philosophy for writing for children and young people and he said, um, he was discussing his own experiences of reading when he was young and he said, like, like obviously frames it in religious terms, but he says it, it baptized my spirit, uh, bef- like something like before my mind was ready. And his, his philosophy and his idea was, was that like you in your literature, you kind of make children and young people confront big ideas that might be beyond their comprehension at the time, but yeah. ultimately prepare them to grapple with those ideas, you know, when they're older or more mature, like it's because they have some kind of, I don't know, like, like, because you've already introduced it in this vivid form that, you know, engages them and plants a seed in the back of their head and has them thinking they're more ready to tackle, uh, you know, those ideas don't seem so esoteric or distant when they confront them in like, I don't know, the adult realm or the, or the older, um, realm, uh, which is, uh, yeah, like, I I don't know. I, I quite like that as a philosophy. I, it's like the idea of like, you know, like writing for children like they're with the with the knowledge that they will one day be adults rather than pretending that children are some different species who have some like inferior sense of reason that you've got to you know uh, protect from all of the the bad things in the world all of the time as if you can just preserve their innocence and amber uh incidentally the um the, the part when all of the a lot of the the clan lose their temporarily lose their sentience when they're confronted with spider uh i i did wonder whether it was inspired by that bit in the the last battle the, the narnia book where actually the cat who's in it who's one of the, the baddies he sort of has his uh, ability to speak and his kind of reason just blasted from his mind when he sees like tash who's this big bored god fella um and he just runs off and like i remember the first time i was reading that and it's a uh it's a uh book with a lot of issues shall we say but we don't have time to go into that now but i remember <laughs> that part blowing me away i was like wow like he can't speak anymore you know he's just he's just a dumb beast like, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah um I, d- I do like that idea of um 
you know, uh, writing in such a way that allow uh, kids to tackle big ideas before, you know, they can actually mentally comprehend it. And this book certainly does that, I think, because of the way it presents the rats. Because, you know, very stereotypically, you know, rats in any kind of media are often presented just as like vermin, rodents, like beasts, whatever, nuisances, basically. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is that, uh, you know, like it's it's effectually effectively it you know it does somewhat present them that way as well, but it also invites us to think about like different things. Like there's, I really like how it keeps presenting little facts about rats that are like you know 100% factual and just interesting little things that you might not have thought about in hindsight are quite obvious. Like for example, when um, you know. Keith says, oh, rats' nests are actually traditionally quite clean. And it's like, oh, yeah, I never really thought about that, but I suppose they would be because it's where they live. Or uh, do you know what happens to rats when you put them in the river? They swim. Rats can swim. Rats are Mm -hmm. excellent swimmers. And like, oh, yeah, it's just like, you know, it invites us to think of, um, you know, something that we might, children especially, might initially take for granted, but which is a little bit of probing. It invites them to be a little bit more inquisitive. And I think it's something that this personally i felt this book did really really well um what you 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 drew the parallel with immigration earlier and i suppose that's a kind of idea that it's uh baptizing the the spirit in like getting people ready for the idea of of questioning stereotypes that grow up around groups you know that don't hold up to logic like as you say like this idea of bring oh yeah you can drown all the rats and then as soon as you say well rats can swim it suddenly seems like Oh, of course, that makes sense, and yeah, this yeah. idea we've had for so long doesn't really hold up to reality. Um, but it that idea has managed to uh, survive and um, uh, be perpetuated because it hasn't been challenged. And like, like I suppose that's the kind of uh, a parallel with uh, the idea of like immigration and integration and things is the stereotypes that grow up around certain um, groups that like once challenged and kind of brought out into the cold light of day really don't hold up but doing that challenging and bringing them out into the cold light of day is a lot easier said than done exactly yeah yeah and you know actually when i realized that this was a theme that was emerging when i was reading the book i started reading up on like you know what was going on around this time like in the uk and that sort of thing obviously this was you know short i'm trying to remember if it was shortly before i was just before uh 9 11 i think yeah, well, it's like 2001, 2002. I think it was just... Oh, no, it was just just after, like, 9-11. Well, I, so, I, it's published in 2001. So I'd oh, imagine so, he would have probably yeah, so, written it bu- before it because it, w- it would seem unlikely that he'd be kind of... Yeah. would have written the book between September and December 2001. Yeah, but um, as well as that... So, I mean, that aside, I was looking up what was going up on uh, around the UK, and one amusing parallel i found was like so um do you know the way like uh maurice is kind of the one who's instigating all this like potential integration and he's like making improvements but he's also doing it for like somewhat selfish reasons like Mm -hmm. you know maybe there's kind of a sense of duty because like he screwed over the rats in one way because he accidentally ate one um before and this is how he became intelligent and i found myself uh, drawing a lot of parallels between Maurice and Tony Blair, like in okay. that, because like, like I was looking. The thing is, like I know a lot of people obviously have a lot of strong feelings about Tony Blair, but like he actually did instigate a lot of very positive changes around immigration as well. Um, obviously, he has a lot of problematic stuff going on around him as well. 
But like the fact that he made some improvements, like uh, it's just interesting. I found, <laughs> and uh, I just I thought that was like a really fun thing that was thrown in there as well. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's the immigration thing. Like I think, let me see. I think I have a some stuff in here. What was there? What do you think about the the end of the book when um? the rats and uh, the humans and bad blints reach a compromise and you have this kind of description of how life in bad blints works from then and, and how it becomes this big tourist attraction but then people just after you know uh, going to bad blints and marvelling at how the rats and the humans can coexist they just go home and continue to put the poison out and put the traps on, uh, down and so on. Yeah, uh, about that. So fittingly, I found that to be a very uneasy and not really appropriate ending. But like, I sort of felt that was the point, you know, that um, this doesn't seem like an ideal solution, but it's not supposed to be presented as such. Like, you know, it's kind of, oh, this is what could be, but it doesn't feel like an organic conclusion, if that makes sense. It doesn't strike me as something that would happen within the text like normally uh it just feels like very very optimistic wishful thinking and that's why i bring i'm bringing it back to um how the rats treat mr bunsey is also how i'm viewing the text in that it's a very optimistic kind of view of the things but like it's not necessarily how things will be but it's how we could potentially plan for the future oh so do you like not buy the kind of compromise like like the last bit of the book with morris negotiating with the the rats and the humans do you think like that's i don't know unrealistic within within the world of the book or i um, think it's like it's a not it's a realistic short-term solution but like and even this is just the way it sat with me but i just don't think it's something that like it's not something i could see being withheld for like like if we came back to this book like 10 years later, I'd imagine that things would probably just resort back to the... This might just be the cynic in me, but I just imagine it would go back to the way things were again afterwards. What well, did you the, think? The, the book frames it in the opposite way, where it says the hard part's going to be the start, and once people normalise it, it's much more likely to uh, continue. You know, once that becomes like... Once you have a generation of humans and rats growing up in that town who are like, oh yeah, we've always... The rats have always been a big part of our tourist industry and uh, so on. Like, that will make it much easier on, um, you know, than the early kind of uh, teething problems of, of creating this this new society. Yeah, I know it presents us that, that way, but and this is just me down to personal experience, and obviously it's going to differ from person to person. But I know it presents us that way, but that just seems wholly optimistic, and it just doesn't seem realistic to me. Um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it is somewhat, but also, I, I mean, I think it, like, again, drawing the immigration parallel, not to say that, like, whatever, all immigration problems are just solved after a certain, you know, after a generation or so has passed of a particular uh, immigrant group integrating into an area, but it does make a certain amount of sense, and usually the most fraught periods tend to be during that initial wave, uh, you know, of, of immigration before um i suppose before both sides kind of grow used to it you know um and again it's that that is being uh, very simplistic and very um how would you put it like too linear like you have flare-ups where periodically groups that have previously largely been you know uh 
part of a society to most respects for many years suddenly become discriminated against again because of particular events or particular developments uh within within the wider culture and society but i mean it, it like it did make sense to me at least that like you you can much more easily imagine the children of these humans and rats getting on uh than you can the um you know the ones to the ideas new and you see it in the book with like stuff like ham and pork who was like older when the rats gained sentience is much more uncomfortable with adjusting to their new way of life than people like dangerous beans and nourishing and uh peaches who are a lot younger you know and and to them it's much more normal this way of doing things well i guess uh, for me personally like i'm i'm bringing it back again to the metatextual thing because i found that very difficult to get away from and because because uh, the book Mr. Bunsey Has an Adventure is presented in such an idealistic way and it's like, oh my God, this is how the perfect way of life could be. And because the book itself wrapped up in such a re- relatively like clean, neat way, like everything worked out. There weren't really any casualties. Um, there were no major deaths except for ham and pork. You know, it's just mm-hmm. everything worked out. And that was the point where I kind of felt myself thinking yes, that's right, I'm reading a young adult novel and it's presenting, like, a message. That's my own personal take on it. Like, I can see, like, your argument is completely valid and you can absolutely say, yes, it would be, like, the starting process that would be the most difficult and it's presenting, like, a clear roadmap. But for me, that was just the point where I became aware that suddenly I was no longer in a world that I was, like, just being absorbed in. I just suddenly became aware I'm reading a book that has a message. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's funny enough for me, I, I sort of felt similarly, but from the opposite uh, direction, where I liked that they devoted a fair few pages to the negotiations between the rats and the humans and kind of uh, didn't just make it all seem like, and they all lived happily ever after because nice people are nice to one another. You know, that they have to, it, it's made very clear this will be an uneasy process and they have to like win one another around and compromise and so on. The bit that uh, made it feel more like, like, I suppose took me out of the narrative and made it feel more like like I'm reading maybe something that is a little more didactic because it's 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 young adult and there's that idea of you know you have to present the uh the message like clear in clearer terms to uh younger readers now you know whether that's true or not you can argue but it it's was the sense I got uh reading this was when he he has the the part about how uh you know people come and visit and they marvel at the tolerance and the um uh, harmony, uh, probably too idealistic of a term, but you know, between the humans and rats, and then they just go home and poison the rats in their own town. And I was like, well, hang on, but the rats in their towns can't speak, you know, and even right. the rats in this book, while like you do have this quite interesting tension of like the clan knows they're different, but how different are they? You know, they have to the start when dangerous beans is we shouldn't kill other rats, and Peaches says even Kiki's. And they're sort of struggling with it. Like, they're like, well, is that really practical? You know, like, we've tried speaking to them and communicating with them and nothing works. So while the rats do have this uneasiness in, like, you know, and certainly they show a lot of compassion for the kikis at the end when they free them from the, the cages and lead them into the river so, you know, so they can just go away and uh, uh, live their own lives elsewhere, mm-hmm. they make a clear distinction between themselves and the kikis. So, ha- you know, this... Uh, having this element where it kind of feels like the, uh, the narration is wagging its finger at us saying like, ah, you see these hypocritical tourists are coming home and they're killing rats after seeing how, you know, 
I don't know, after seeing the, the humanity and feeling of rats in this town, you're thinking, well, but, but the book has already told us these rats are different, you know, and mm. they, they couldn't reach that compromise with the, whatever, the Kiki's back in Bunk or Querm or wherever these tourists are coming from, you know, they, they, yeah. they couldn't have a, a similar arrangements. But I will say, going back to that kind of baptizing the spirit idea, while that that uh, bit did feel a bit didactic in the sense that once you begin thinking about it, you think, well, what else could these tourists do? It does draw attention to a broader point the book's trying to make about the sort of cognitive dissonance that allows prejudice to flourish. Like earlier, you have the rats wondering, like, how could humans write Mr. Bunsey and a character like Ratty Rupert and also lay down poison for rats? You know, and like logically we can say, oh, yeah, well, of course, because Reddy Rupert is a fictional character. And, you know, you know, real rats are just vermin. But it it, that sort of point in general makes sense. Like it kind of reminds me of when you see, say, racism in sport where people will, uh, you know, say, like cheer on a black player on their team and then hurl racial abuse at a black player on the opposing team. You know, like that Mm. kind of dissonance where you can accommodate it in one area of your life. Uh, and that doesn't seem to challenge the prejudice you hold against this group and all these other areas of your life, you know? So it, it, it's sort of that C.S. Lewisian sense. It's like it's not about making like a really kind of, I don't know, logical, philosophical argument. It's it's more about like just pointing the reader at this like general, com- like the, the beginnings of this complex point, like, you know, and just yeah. saying, think about it. Yeah, that 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 is the definitely the general view that I get from the book as a whole, and because it doesn't really, I mean, you can take it very very literally and say, oh, it totally offers a solution. We can all work together in harmony. But even that doesn't really work when you like take a you know cracks start to form when you look at that because you know for the one part um, there isn't really a massive difference between the rats at the start of the book and at the end of the book, because in both situations, they're kind of working within the system, but like, they're not like really accepted. Like they're not really in positions of authority. Like in the first scenario, like when they're they're you know, they're just swindling the humans, like, you know, they're working within the system and taking advantage of it and like kind of getting by, like with backhanded, like, you know, not necessarily morally correct ways to kind of survive. But then even as things progress, you know, the only reason, like, they're not really allowed to, like, they're not really allowed to live in harmony. The only reason they're allowed to live, like, with the humans in such, like, this, in such a beneficial way is because the humans allow it, you know? Like, it's only because they're shown how they can take advantage of the rats within this system, you know? I mean, that's that- that's true, because, like, Morris obviously appeals to their, uh, well, I know, more greed. venial nature, yeah, and their greed, but... The, the implication is that they will get a like you know they will have equal authority like they talk about having rat watchmen arresting humans who kill rats you know mm. um so that definitely po- and like like the the end of the discussion with dark tan and the mayor they very much see each other as equals as peers you know you're the leader of the rats i'm the leader of the humans neither one mm. sees themselves as like above the other one so i definitely feel like the i mean as you said earlier you're kind of left to wonder how long this situation will um go on for i mean i mm. think within the world of the book it could probably go on for for longer than than, than you think but that's whatever that's you know uh, just uh our opinions on it but i think in the immediate future at least you're definitely given the implication that they they will have equal authority of like you know if if 
uh, I suppose like Morris's plan comes up and, and the implication is they all seem while they're still arguing about it they seem to be moving along you know you had that discussion with Keith and Melissa at the end when they mentioned they're still arguing but it's sort of a good sign because they're arguing about it like it's something to be argued about rather than something to dismiss mm, I mean so yeah. the implication is definitely that they will in terms of their relationship to like at least this specific group of humans and bad blints they'll be in a much better position than they were at the start of the book like they'll be to a certain extent like like integrated into the uh, society of bad blints in that way Mm. It's funny though because like the way the rats treat like I I I thought uh having pork was a really interesting character because of um the way he was talking about the old way of life kind of reminds me of um uh I remember seeing this in like a comedy sketch show or something like how do you know in the Irish diaspora like they go off to America and like you know even though like they're like oh I'm an Irish American citizen but they'll still like, you know, romanticize Ireland, says, oh, God, it's not as good here as it back in the old country. It's wonderful. It's beautiful back there. And that kind of raises the question, well, why the hell did you come here then? Why didn't you stay in the, like, the old country? And then, like, you look at ham and pork and he's like, you know, oh, things were better back when we were, like, you know, just rats. And, like, but, you know, you have to question, like, him during there. It's like, well, if it was better, like, I mean, he obviously can't go back. And there's a bit of a distinction there. But, you know... Ham and pork can see clearly that things are better because less people have died because they're smarter because they have the trap, uh, the trap uh, dismemberment team or what whatever it is that's run by Darktan. Um, you know they're just approaching things a lot smarter. Like you know they're much more streamlined. But he's he's romanticizing the old way of life, and I thought that was really interesting compared because you get that a lot with um, you know, a lot of immigrants in a lot of countries in that like they will first of all they will romanticize like the country that they're going to but once they're there they have a tendency to romanticize the country in which they came from yeah so, and, and you have then the, the second generation is sort of like adapting and it's between both cultures and that's again true with the rats here that by the end of the book they're reaching a compromise with humans and the world of humans but they're mm. also doing it as you know as rats um I, I thought uh, Ham and Pork uh, is is interesting character and like I, I kind of like that dilemma of him realising he's sort of obsolete and trying to maintain his authority and mm. the rest of them sort of feeling for reasons they can't quite articulate that because he is this link with like the older world that they, they sort of want to prop up his authority a little but they don't want him getting in the way of like their new ways of doing things but mm. uh, so so i like that but i did think there is a, a bit of a like I, I suppose like a lack of subtlety in the way he's depicted like he always seems to be like shouting or bawling in reply to someone you know what i mean like mm. I, I i like that general defensiveness he has that like he's constantly willing to read any comment from like dark tan or dangerous beans it's like a challenge to his authority uh but i just wish it kind of like come out a little more subtly than like you know, blah, 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 mm. said Dark Tan, like, what? You know, Hammondbark <laughs> shouted back, I'm the leader here, he roared. Yeah. Like, you know, it just felt like, like everything he kind of greeted by uh, instantly, um, yeah, just like like jumping towards this. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with you that I, I would have liked for it to have been a bit more subtle as well. I think, I don't know if you can say you can justify it, but I think there's like a certain element might be just, again, due to the fact that it's considered a young adult novel. So maybe... There's a possibility Terry Pratchett might have been trying to make sure the point got hammered home mm -hmm. to very young readers. But then again, you know, I, I think there's a possibility that he might not be given some of the readers enough credit. 
who knows yeah um yeah. i yeah, I, I agree with you, but like we're both reading this as like thirty something year olds, so obviously we'd like a little bit more subtlety, but maybe that works for younger younger yeah, readers. Yeah, I know true. I I I pretty sh- like I know I definitely didn't have any problems with it the first time I read it, but obviously now it's very different. Um what, one thing I was thinking about was um the idea so I know I talked to you about uh, Mr. Bunsey has an adventure as kind of a meta uh, meta narrative device, but I was kind of considering it as well as um, sorry, sorry, not the Mister Bunsy has an adventure, but the fairy tales that uh, Militia has been reading her whole life are might be it's a little bit like tabloids in a way. So she's like considering the way, like you know, oh, this is the way like the world should be working. It's like, oh no, I've read these stories, and this is how it should be. And, you know, she has all these backwards notions of how, like, things should work. And I found myself kind of thinking about it. It's, it's a bit like people reading, like, News of the World or whatever. It says, no, I read this article that said anyone with this color skin is an evil arsehole, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It's Did you did you find that was there at all? Or uh, it's, it's, I, it's a vibe I, I, I got. I didn't draw the direct parallel with tabloids in my head. But, I mean, I see what you mean about just kind of, I suppose, any like any framework for your understanding of the world that ends up like really constricting and simplifying your understanding of the world where, you know, Mm. uh, you have to fit everything into these very small ultra specific boxes and, you know, anything that doesn't go in like that's a square peg you're trying to fit in a round hole is either like hammered or kind of pruned into shape by your mental processing of it, or Mm. is just thrown out altogether you know, yeah. in, in that kind of way, like, yeah, I see what you mean. Like, it's sort of offering her this very restrictive, narrow way of looking at things. But at the same time, you do see another side with her that it is quite empowering. Like, she's a bit like, <laughs> they end up being able to con the uh, rat piper at the end because she's brought so much cotton wool because she just comes, like, ultra prepared. She's like mm. Adam West's Batman or something with everything <laughs> in his utility belt. Like, in her bag, she just, like, Mary Poppins style. She just has everything, you know? And, and as I said, that. I find a conversation she has with Keith quite interesting where like she says you've got to make your own story and it, again it, it's left sort of ambiguous of, of whose side we should come down with here so um, she's interested in that regard for yeah you can definitely see the the huge uh, restrictions this like her reliance on these stories is putting on her how she perceives the world but at the same time it seems to kind of uh, give her a lot of uh, confidence and resolve to uh, you know, go out and confront the world. What did you think of Keith? Keith, um, he doesn't really leave much of an impact, have to say. Like, I mean, he functions well enough narratively, but like, I kind of, I, without being as offensive as, um, your man from Thief of Time, what was his name again? I can't even remember his name, it's <laughs> that forgettable. Sounds like Love Sang. Love saying, yeah. He's so, like without being like that offensively bland. I still came away with like very little. Like uh, they kind of chase up this idea of him, um, you know, being one with the rats and like you know, kind of like a rat boy sort of thing. But I sort of feel it doesn't really go anywhere. Like um, you could, I don't know, maybe draw a parallel between him as like some kind of activist or something, like or. I don't know, uh, you know, sympathizer or something, but it just, it feels a little bit half-baked. Like, I know he works in terms of, like, the 
surface story, you know, the young adults, like fairy tale kind of story. And he works in that narrative. But for the theme that's going for, like, he's a bit simple, one note. And even though I like this book a lot, I he's kind of a weak point for me. He kind of attracts my sympathy because he he's dismissed by uh, Morris and Melissa as like stupid looking kid. Morris is even surprised he has a name when he introduces himself to Melissa. And he really identifies with the rats. He he uses some of their language and he knows a lot about them. And that's what Melissa kind of mocks him for as rat boy. But then we later see the rats don't seem to care about him all that much. Like Dark Tan refers to him as stupid looking kid. Even when he's talking about how the fact that he, he made, Keith made a sore for him, you know. So he's not yeah. saying it like at a point where he's pissed off with him. He's, he's It's just his general way of referring to him. And uh, then later, he, I, I think it's when Keith and Melissa are locked up and they're going to rescue Hammond Pork. Dark Tan says something about not caring about humans. Um, so he's kind of between both worlds and neither of them want them very much. And then you get hints of this darker nature when he um, he wants to poison the rat catchers with actual poison. And, and Melissa is the one who suggests using the laxative. Uh, and then you get the, like the very last bit uh, of him. Hang on, it's it's fascinating to me because it suggests a completely different read on his character and as i was reading it i was thinking actually we're never in his head so this is um uh this is quite possible so there's there's all these parallels with is it like dick whittingham and his cat who became he became mayor because he had this great rat catching cat and i i think like morris basically asks uh um I think he says, he says to Keith, want to make your fortune. But then the very last line of the book is Morris meeting with another um, quote-unquote stupid-looking kid where he says, want to be Lord Mayor, right? So this is at the, at the, the last bit where you have Melissa and Keith. Um, Melissa is trying to very tentatively make, you know, make friends with Keith without, I suppose, without seeming too vulnerable. I said, I, I really love that bit, it, it kind of, because, because she seems so uh, endearingly vulnerable. But she says, um, uh, she's talking about that, like the slap up tea with cream buns, which is very like famous fivey that she, that she insisted happen. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yes, said Melissa, it wouldn't be properly over otherwise. Would you uh, join me? Keith nodded. He stared around at the town. It seemed a nice place, just the right size. A man could find a future here. Just one question, he said. Yes, said Melissa meekly. How long does it take to become mayor? So that's mm. kind of implying that like he's he's learned a lot under Morris's wing, and he too is this, uh, I, I suppose not not cutthroat or not rootless, but very much opportunistic character, um, who's maybe a lot more cunning beneath the surface than people give him credit for. Possibly, but I don't think there's. Again, this is my take. I know there's some parts we're always going to disagree in, but I did not get that. Uh, a lot of the reason behind that is because he seems a bit too emotional to be that kind of level of cunning. You know, whereas like Maurice is able to rein in his emotions a lot of the time. And you can see this anytime he's talking to Militia. Uh, that, like, so he's able to take advantage of like her and other people at plenty of opportunities. But... Uh, like Maurice, like he has that moment where he just loses it with militia and just like calls oh, you stupid girl. Like he just can't control his emotions, which 
leads you to believe that he's just exactly what the book describes, just kind of a stupid kid. Obviously, it has that turning point at the end. And this is unfortunately something that like, you know, we've talked about before with Terry Pratchett, where sometimes like a character will just like make a very sudden change and just because the narrative demands it. And unfortunately, that's how just how I viewed it. Um, I, I don't think there's I mean, you can, of course, read it that way. You can say that, like, maybe he is learning a lot about um, from Maurice and, like, he suddenly become, like, far more intelligent. Uh, you know, everyone can interpret things their own way and there's no reason to say that isn't the case, but it's just not how I read it personally. Yeah, I, I know what you mean about that, like, that it would seem out of character. I suppose what, what um, made me, I suppose, read into it that much is because we're, we don't, you know, we're, we're not in his uh we're not in his head a whole lot so it's it's not uh, going against the huge amount of him that's been established you know it just suddenly makes you realize oh actually i don't know very much about his thought process and i see what you yeah. mean about him he is more like emotional uh don morris but at the same time i don't mean that he's as masterfully crafty but more that he's learned a lot and is heading in that direction you know Mm. yeah it's it's certainly like a viable idea and like it's especially the bit where um she uh, militia asks what his name is and when reese goes i didn't know you had a name it does kind of make you kind of prick your ears up and go oh shit maybe there is something more to this character like it does do that um yeah there's definitely potential for that idea there absolutely yeah um what uh what did you think of the rat king spider as like a villain um i mean uh, like i liked him in the sense that that discussion he has with dangerous beings where they contrast their approaches towards rat emancipation uh, is interesting like him uh thinking for the rats and dangerous beings thinking about them uh um like it's 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 a nice contrast between i don't know uh like uh, revolution as militant tyranny or you know revolution as compassionate I'm glad you picked uh, up on that yeah, um, I thought that as well <laughs> yeah assertion of rights and so on um, and, and he's quite eerie and, and uh, spooky and um, like I, I think it's it's nice that we sort of have his power, the level of his powers kind of established when Morris realises that he's seeing through his eyes and if he closes his eyes um, I do remember though the first time I listened to this on audiobook years ago, like being really excited and uh, like you know almost like pleasurably um, unsettled by what was going on, and I couldn't wait to see what it was, and almost being disappointed when I, I saw what he was. I, I think it was just mm. largely because even though, and and I will say this thematically ties in perfectly with the whole what what the book's going for and how uh, humans have like. Uh, um, uh, brutalized rats and seen them as vermin. This is just giving them permission to treat them any way they like. Like the fact that the the in that sense, the fact that the rat catchers made him, and it's implied the rat catchers guild has been doing this for years. Like that makes complete sense. But I remember it seemed kind of disappointing to me that like oh, so he's just eight normal rats that one of those lads who shit themselves like you know <laughs> tied together years yeah. ago. Like he's not this sort of force of darkness that has uh you know i don't know like a more detailed backstory or kind of deeper roots within the within the deep dark uh pit of um under the ground and under the soul um mm. i think yeah i mean you're right it does 
tie up thematically very, very well. And I do agree with you because the fir- I remember the first time I read it thinking, oh my God, the Rat King, he's this terrifying like entity. It's just like absolutely horrific. But when I read it the second time, like you, I got to the point where he's revealed and you're just kind of, oh, well, okay. But the fact that I still remember that, the effect the story had on me had managed to lodge into my head that he was this terrifying entity again perfectly links up with like the theme that the book is going for and i think it's especially telling that um that bit where they're talking about how the racking is made and initially it's said that like oh it happens like in nature when like you know uh the rat's tails clump together and then that's very quickly correct and say no that's not the case uh you know and guild members make them so it's like a case of no, this isn't natural evil. This is man-made evil. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that is brilliant. I thought that was, like, one of the cleverest bits of the entire book. You know, it was really intelligent to have, like, the grand evil thing at the end of the day, just something that people created, and they don't even realize what it is they have created until suddenly it's doing terrible things to them. So it's great that this... The Rat King kind of represents the absolute worst of the rats, the absolute worst version of them completely. And it's very, very telling that um, this is something that people have created um, as opposed to like, you know, what they actually are. But this is like, you know, the worst version and how they are seen. I, I just thought that was brilliant. It was fantastic storytelling that bit. Yeah, absolutely. It does uh, tie in so well with... with what it seems like a lot of the books are trying to say and I suppose it cause causes you again prods the reader towards asking questions about human society rather than just seeing the evil as this external uh, thing that emerged from a vacuum that we just have to defeat and then when it's defeated we never have to think about it again. Do you think mm. um uh he's so powerful because it's eight rats and eight is a magically significant number in the disc world? Like, he draws oh. attention to the fact that, like, he's a racket. I think they, they say they can be made out of different ones. And Pratchett has a note at the back about how he research Rat Kings. And, you know, some of them have, I think he, he says, Rat Kings really exist. How they come into existence is a mystery. Uh, let's see. Is, oh, no, he doesn't say it here. I, I'm sure I read somewhere about, like, Rat Kings. Maybe they say in the book that, you know, some of them are made out of a, a couple of rats. Some of them are made out of even more Uh but the fact that he calls himself Spider, which draws attention to, uh, you know, his... Uh, the eight, the eight, made, yeah, the um, eight, yeah. Yeah. But um, actually, you know, funnily enough, uh, when I was reading it again, I realized, like, it's really appropriate that he has a name like Spider, which is just so, like, it's a name designed to instill fear. And I couldn't help but draw more parallels again with, like, the whole terrorism act. Like, you know, that he's trying to present, like, this much more terrifying aspect than he actually is. Like, he's literally... Like, that name is designed to instill fear, you know? Like, very clear. Like, it's obviously not like, oh, you know, I was born and someone said, oh, we'll call it Spider. It's like, no, you're going to hear this name and you're going to be scared very much like, you know, a terrorist would, terrorist would do. But I hadn't thought about, like, the whole, you know, eight as a magic number aspect of it. It's one of those ones that it's kind of a flaw in the book, but one that I find quite easy to forgive. Like it's never really clear why a spider has the powers that he does. But, um, you know, it's just, it's one of those, it's one of those occasions where I get wrapped up in the story. So it doesn't really bother me as much, but you know, that is like a valid explanation. It could be. All right. Do you know, it's funny that, um, I remember when I read this book, I completely forgot it was a Discworld novel 
because there isn't that much to signify. Yeah, yeah, there really isn't. I mean, all you've got really is uh, the fact that the rats and gained their sentience from eating the stuff from Unseen University, uh, you know. And even that, like, it could very much be generic fantasy place, um, like, uh, setting, and and, and you wouldn't uh, gain or lose a a whole lot extra. Um, Did did you see a lot of the the parallels with... uh, Gaspod. Gaspod, yeah, with Morris, even right down to his ending, that they kind of hand him a happy ending on a silver platter with this home, with this old woman, and he decides to not take it, uh, which I think Gaspard does at the end of Men at Arms. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. But do you know what? It's a weird thing because I feel like it would be very easy to complain that like, oh, he's just like a cop, cop, uh, copy, cut and paste kind of version of Gaspard. Mm-hmm. But the very, very simple fact that it's a cat instead of a dog actually changes aspects of his personality. So, you know, like it's it's a very simple thing, but that Gaspard himself is a scruffy little terrier. Whereas Maurice, like, um, is never, like, described that way, like, as a, you know, a dirty cat or anything like that. And the fact that it's a cat which has generally a very different attitude to dogs, it's such a simple thing. But, like, he felt like a very different character, even though he was very similar. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was just, I mean, it's a simple thing. And I'm not even, I wouldn't even go so far as to say it was clever. I'd imagine they're just kind of like, oh, this works for the story. But it works, which I just thought was great. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely parallels there. Um, there's also between uh, Spider and Big Fido, sort of similarly. Um, yeah. Like, like in these kind of, of uh, like, yeah, leading dogs and rats towards kind of brutal, uh, brutally overthrowing their oppressors and becoming the impress- oppressors themselves. And similarly with, uh, um, I, th- I think I found it a bigger issue in, in Men at Arms, but you, we were saying with Big Fido, it's never sort of really explained how he's sentient um, in the same way that, like you were saying, it's, it's never explained really why, like how why Spider is so powerful, uh, let alone being sentient. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, did you did you get any uh, kind of under? There's, I don't know. I I felt this was kind of sort of there, but I'm not sure how much Terry Pratchett actually does with it. But there's definitely like. A sort of pondering on existentialism here, which might be just sort of a carryover from Thief of Time, that like uh, you know the rats are constantly questioning their own identity, but as well as that, like you know Maurice is doing that too. Like, and mm-hmm. I love the fact that this is one thing I thought was it's a slick little nod to like um, psychological history, in that he sees himself in a mirror, and that's when he becomes self-aware. So it's a bit of like a re- reference to like the, the mirror, mirror stage, stage that yeah. Lacan, yeah, that Lacan discusses, which I think is like you know really nifty. But like, I don't think there's a, this is maybe it's not existentialism. I, th- I think it leans more into identity more than anything else, which would tie in obviously with immigration that sort of thing a lot better. But um, even the fact that like you know, the Maurice is questioning his place in the world like from the very beginning, and like the rats are doing that too it's um it's very rock solid i'm glad that like you know that the theme that it's going for is kind of grounded in a lot of aspects in the book you know regardless of, like what direction it's taking yeah that that whole questioning of like what is it to be what is it to think you know the kind of disadvantages that come with like the pressing questions that come when you're thinking of yourself and what your identity is um it, it reminded me a lot of like the uh the bromeliad um 
Yeah, me too, actually. Like, yeah. You've got the cargo cult element with, like, they have, you know, how they mythologized the store and that the gnomes have. And, and here they've mythologized Mr. Bunsey. Um, yeah, yeah. And you've got the idea of creating a species that's sort of confused by human society, and then through doing that, you kind of highlight the contradictions of human society. It, you also yeah. see it in Only You Can Save Mankind with the Screewee. When, like, I remember, like, there's conversation with Johnny and the Screewee captain, and she's talking about, like, stuff like the Geneva Conventions and having rules of war and um, so mm. on. I think it's it's something, obviously, Pratchett uh, is very, um, you know, interested in writing. I think it's quite a tricky thing to write because it can feel kind of trite or like, like a cheat to pretend that you can step outside humanity with a fictional creation and critique humanity when, like, there's no actual real equivalent. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a tricky thing for me to articulate, but it's like when you're critiquing, like, a culture clash, like how he does with, like, dwarves and trolls and humans and, like, more fucking clash, it... it that there's kind of roots in in real life with like you know different cultures questioning their own uh, norms and uh, prevailing attitudes when they um, encounter one another. But trying to do it for all of humanity, it's like you know I I there's plenty to uh, criticize in the history of human society. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but the idea that you can kind of pretend to step beyond that, I don't know. Like it's like there is nothing like that in real life. Like until we until we encounter aliens or like you know, yeah. AI reaches a singularity. So it's it's like, I don't know, ultimately when I, a lot of times when I read that idea, when you have these like, whether they're aliens or in this case, sentient rats or whatever, kind of encountering humanity and critiquing humanity, I just think like, this is feels like the author pretending they can take this higher transcendent view of human society. And it also often feels like they're, they're conflating a particular culture or society which is like human nature or like oh this is how humans act you know and when it's like yeah. well you're actually looking at one village one town one one country here i do think and in, in that's um, i know speaking about my frustrations with that idea in general i do think here he carries it off quite well partly because you have that existential element of the rats only kind of getting used to sentience and they're not really sure like they're still questioning what the idea of rat society is and what rat identity is while they're kind of feeling their way through the contradictions of human identity. So it doesn't feel as, um, I don't know, maybe as like smug or superior as that kind of thing can, can come off in other books. Well, I think the reason that he succeeds is because he breaks it down so much. Like when the rats are questioning their own identity, they're drawing on things that apply to absolutely everybody. Like there's that point where... Um, Dangerous Beans questions, what is a rat? And first, Hammond relates like in the easiest way. He, he breaks it down to physicality. It's like, it's, it's fur. It's like, you know, meat. It's like teeth. It's hair. And you're like, yeah, I mean, you could be applying this to like any person in human history and odds are to be the same. It's like, yes, so it's, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. And regardless of what culture you're from, you're like, there's something to be relate to there and then when you break it down he goes another step further and it's one of the other rats who he kind of challenges ham and pork he says but what about like the you inside you you know it's like what do you mean this is you know when you when you sleep and you dream what about the bit that's doing that so he's like referring to like you know um just general consciousness and like you know you know, uh, maybe, maybe there's an aspect of the soul maybe mm-hmm. he's discussing religion there, but generally he's talking about consciousness. And again, this is something that's relatable across the board. Like it doesn't matter what culture you're from, 
everybody dreams so like you know everybody can relate to that and that's he's kind of just constantly reminding us that like when we're dealing with something like immigration there are things that connect each and every one of us and that's why i think he's so successful yet obviously he can't you know step outside and like you know critique every aspect of culture but he can remind us our similarities which is why i think it works so well Mm -hmm. um there's a few other random little bits in here like I was trying to develop and say like I wonder if this is like an actual thing here but there's no there's not really enough in it I think to really say that there's not a lot to say about it like um <laughs> one train of thought that like I had to very quickly say no that's bullshit was um I found myself thinking of you know when Maurice he's constantly saying to the rats um how you know, anytime I eat a rat or something, I always ask it. I always say, you know, mm-hmm. can you talk? Can you talk? I say it again. And she says, yes, we understand, Maurice. We understand. She say that. <laughs> and I found myself thinking of vegans. <laughs> Just, you know, it's a, you know, I only eat such and such a thing. And like, so I, like, I know that's obviously not what they're going for, but it's just something that I picked up on. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> um, but there's other bits in that. Do you know one thing I thought was very out of place? Um, there's a point where someone mentions crop circles, mm-hmm. which kind of suggests like the existence of UFOs in the disc world. And I thought that was very, very odd. That's what? really what part of that? Oh, I'm trying to remember when it comes up, but um, it's near the end. Hang on, hang on. I'll see if I can find it here. But someone says. Uh, Page 202. Okay, bear with me one second. So yeah, um, Militia is talking and she said, she's looking around the shed, the rat catcher sh- shed. And she's like, oh yes, it, it makes, it makes almost as good as a story. Probably there were one or two real rat kings. All right, all right, maybe just one. And people heard about this and decided that since there was all this interest, they'd try and make one. Yes, it's just like crop circles. No matter how many aliens own up to making them, there are always a few diehards who believe that humans go out with garden rollers in the middle of the night and then it just gets cut off. Yeah, like yeah, you're right. Particularly as we had in, in Lords and Ladies, that crop circles into this world have a completely different um, explanation. You know, with yeah. circle time and the elves and so on. Um, it, it it sounds like something that like would be in like the Johnny Maxwell books. Um, yeah. Do like, you know, I feel like it's one of those rare occasions where like Terry Pratchett kind of forgets that um, the themes that he's working off are intruding too much on the surface level story that he's trying to tell so like you know because that kind of works in the with the whole tabloid theme that mm-hmm. you know Militia is working off like because she's kind of thinking of this like whole so oh you know it's like those people who are always talking about crop circles and like in that sense it works but in terms of like the overarching Discworld thing, and I think this is part of the reason why I thought it's a bit odd that it's a Discworld book because it feels a little stilted in the overall canon of the Discworld. It doesn't feel quite in place there. And I feel like it was kind of just wedged in for the sake of it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I do wonder, uh, like this is pure speculation, but obviously this this comes in a wake of the, the popularity of Harry Potter and, and YA being this burgeoning huge market for... for uh, um, books and and I wonder whether Pratchett was kind of I I like how much interest he had in writing one or but like whether he was pushed to like oh if you're doing one make it Discworld because Discworld is already a known um mm. you know a known yeah. quantity that will attract readers and it'll be easier to market uh, I I don't know I don't want to kind of beat uh, speculate 
too much there because it's it's said it's, it's there's uh, little to substantiate the other way, but it does feel like an odd fit at times. Certainly, if you compare it to um, the Tiffany Aiken ones. There, I said I've mm. only heard We Free Men, but the impression I got from that and from like hearing of the other ones, they're much more rooted in uh, sort of taking up the baton of the Lonker Witch series and a lot of that world, and you know, like kind of interacting with the elves and uh, the, mm. the role of a witch in those societies and things like that. It, it's building on stuff that previous um, Discworlds. Uh, books mm. touched on a lot, whereas this one could be uh, could quite easily be removed and it'll be taking place in generic storybook fantasy land and uh, um, yeah, not not really lose a lot beyond the fact that it is referenced in Reaper Man. I think that like one of the wizards complains about the so- Mister So Called Amazing Morris and his educated rodents. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, because yeah. I remember when we read that, I was like, oh, that's going to be coming up in a while. Yeah, that's amazing. Um. There's another character I want to ask you about. What did you think of Peaches? Um, I, I kind of... I I remember... I feel like I remember there being more of her, like, in my head from my memory of listening to it. She was more prominent than she actually turned out to be in the narrative. Like, she's there sort of grounding dangerous beings, you know, and um, I, I suppose being a, a kind of, like, br- interesting bridge between, like, the practicality of people like Dark Tan and, uh, like, more sort of intellectual existential wonderings of the likes of dangerous beings like she's kind of between them but i i that part where um you have the part at the start when they're trying to convince morris that they're uncomfortable with uh swindling people and you know she coughs and and he's like thinking he's thinking oh this means peaches is about to speak and she's not going to be moved on anything and there's a part right at the end like that as well when they're in the negotiations with the um the uh, mayor and i and not that those two uh, moments are like completely at odds with her character or you know they're not out of character in any sense but I remember kind of being surprised when I got to the end of the book that there wasn't more of them that that sort of like um, you know kind of like uh, quiet but firm stubbornness that she exhibits in these like moment that certain moment at the end isn't a bigger part of her role in the story yeah I am um... When I was examining her in hindsight, I found myself quite disappointed with her role in the story because one of the key moments that I found was uh, when she's talking to Ham and Pork. And I feel like her main role in the story is actually to show how backwards Ham and Pork is because it's got that moment where, uh, oh, Ham and Pork didn't like you know, listen to the opinions of females. And like it's kind of emphasized that Ham and Pork is you know, sexist, basically. He doesn't want anything to do with any of the women there. And I found it strange that, like, I thought Peach's key role in the story, and this is my takeaway from it, was to showcase the sexism from, like, the old, uh, you know, the old version of the rats as opposed to the new version. But strangely enough, in doing that, because that is her only function, it's still a little bit... It's it's not exactly progressive, you know. She doesn't contribute all that much to the story, so I yeah, don't know. It's I I wouldn't I wouldn't quite say it's her only function. Like conversations with dangerous beings do illuminate a lot about like his ideas and kind of their role as the, as the I don't know like the intellectuals of 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 the rats. But I do I I would agree with you that she kind of 
I don't know, like for, from early bits, you think she's going to buy a p- more prominent role than she does, and and quite often mm. she's just there more as a uh, a foil or a support to to other characters. Yeah, like it's interesting that she and uh, Sardines actually have very similar roles in that, like Sardines is kind of a facilitator for Darktan. Once he mm-hmm. becomes like the leader, he kind of like uh, pushes him along to like be the leader that like he needs to be. And Peaches, by the same token, like, she kind of facilitates Dangerous Beans. Like, when he's at, at his dark moment, she kind of pushes him along to try and encourage him to be the person he wants to be. And what I find interesting about that is Sardines is very much the comic relief. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, he's the dancing rat, the one who's, like, wearing the dentures and all that. Like, he's the funny character. And Peaches is basically has the exact same role, except she's the girl. So, yeah, I, you know, it's just it doesn't come off very favorably as a result, you know, it's, it's, and it's like, you're right because she has a strong personality at the start. And this is kind of a recurring problem. A lot of the time in a lot of like uh, Terry Pratchett books, with the exception of the witches books is why, which is why I think I like those ones so much is that like, you know, female characters have a tendency to display a lot of very strong characteristics, but in the overarching like story, they tend to like, you know, not be as important. Like, I think one of the few exceptions to that was actually Satyrissa in The Truth, which is why we like that one so much. Mm-hmm. Like, she was, you know, portrayed quite well and capable the whole way through that. I don't but know. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I would say, like, like Anua in the Watch books is certainly, like, she's both strong, but often quite a, like, quite kind of well integrated into the plot. The exception being Jingo, which I think was one of our problems with it, where she sort of fades from prominence. Oh. Like yeah, uh, I in, in the middle of the book, but I mean most of them, uh, like she, you know, she kind of very much has a lot to do. Um, like mm-hmm. was cheery in Feet of Clay and The Fifth Elephant. And like I, I, I'm not saying this criticism isn't warranted in some places. Like I would agree with you, but I don't think it's as prominent as um, well, you know, across no, the sorry, board. Maybe- I think I spoke a bit too rashly there because there are good moments. And like, I remember one of our favorite moments in the fifth element was actually Sybil's moment where she kind of takes care of herself, like, you know, as like a diplomat when she mm-hmm. arrives in like the Uberwald, uh, the, I forget the, sorry, the Anguist family, family. The, uh, yeah, Von Uberwald. Yeah. And like, she, you know, she has that amazing moment where she proves herself to be like completely capable, despite the fact she's in a very, very uncomfortable situation that would, for most people proved to be their undoing. And like, we were just like, that was a very like uproarious moment where it's like, yes, good on you, lady civil. Um, I think, and to be fair, this isn't something that I'm leveling just at Terry Pratchett. I think this is just indicative of the time that this was, this is still early noughties. So, you know, this is still a point where, you know, and it's kind of depressing to say this, like in the early noughties, but it was still kind of an issue back at this point. So, well, I mean, like still is today. Really, it still is today. You know, I mean, like we're we're a bit more aware of it now, but like it's yeah, not much has changed. Um, it's just unfortunate that like you think you know early noughties, you kind of think, wow, the noughties, this is where progress starts to happen, but it really hasn't. Yeah, but it's hardly the most retrograde example. Like in, no. in like peaches, no, I... peaches is a well, like her character is established well. She just isn't given a lot to do. But then you have Melissa, who kind of is a, like like a very strongly defined character, and also has a lot to do. You know, like even if someone yeah. else is getting stuff wrong, it's still kind of uh, like it's still very important parts of the the plot, and I, I think she's like very well drawn and um, vivid character. 
I, I actually weirdly I, I would think of as um the probably the the more glaring example of that kind of thing of having a, a uh, strongly established well drawn female character who just isn't given a lot to do and kind of hangs around is like maybe Susan in Thief of Time where her like her role is less prominent than you would think it would be at the start you know like when she kind of she goes out like she has great moments in it but like she kind of fades into the background at, at points of that book and uh, like it's technically slotted in with the sort of death Susan books but really um, I mean she's a, a lot a less prominent than, than other characters are uh, in that one Mm. yeah the more i think of thief of time the more i realize that was a really really messy book you know every time we think of it like i'm trying to think of like the only thing that book really had going for it was its sense of epicness but if you take that away it has very little actually going for it oh yeah i don't you know i mean i i like you had a lot of problems but like it, there's a lot of great ideas in it there's some lovely characters like uh lady legion and um mm. uh, jeremy uh mm. but yeah it is just uh, I don't know. I think I think it's I think it is quite messy. Um, Compar- comparatively, we're yeah. always going to have to like uh, you know stress that it's always comparatively. Like even a bad Terry Pratchett book is still a good book. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you you, you got any anything else to, to cover on? on no, Morris? I think that's about as much. I mean, we still. I mean, I'm still trying to get a sense of like you know how you feel about it because I I'm guessing that you probably feel similar to I that I do. Although it's strange, when we started this, my initial reaction was, oh, I love this book, I thought it was brilliant. But we have actually uncovered quite a few problems now, which is making me rethink it. I still like it a lot. I really, really enjoyed this. I think it's quite clever in some ways, but it's not without its problems. So, like, I'm ranking it high above average in terms of, like, the general Terry Pratchett canon. But now that we've talked about it and revealed its problems and realizing it's not quite as good as I thought it was at the start... Um, but I'm sorry to have spoiled it for you. <laughs> you gained full of enthusiasm, and I just, <laughs> I just like smothered it completely. Stop feeling good about this. You're no, wrong. That's what we're here for. <laughs> we're we're here to, to smother people's enthusiasm. It's the whole point exactly. of the podcast. We're here apparently. to like examine these like properly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I it's, it's an odd feel about it. Um, I made the. Comp- Parasite start when uh, at the Twitter uh, conversation with Wizard of the White Tulip when he said about like uh, part of writing YA means kind of imposing certain restrictions but that can then like lead you down creative paths and I made the comparison at start this with um, you know like uh, vinyl albums limiting you to a certain uh, like a certain runtime uh, compared to mm. other mediums and this almost feels like. I don't know. It's it's a it's like an EP. Uh, not only is it is it like physically shorter than uh, most of the other books in terms of page count, but it sort of feels slighter. But at the same time, it feels tough to critique that because it's deliberately going down that route. Just mm. I, I do have one thing to cover before we we do get into ranking. I, I put out a call for um uh for comments or questions, and uh, Wizard of Dwight Tulip said I read. Morris, the first time not long ago, I remember liking the way I touched on similar ideas of progress as Fifth Elephant, which is impressive for a kid's book. I also like Morris tra- trading his lies for Dangerous Beans at the end. Uh, yeah, which is a lovely moment, actually. Um, for one, it, it brings to a kind of uh, a head this struggle Morris has had and like, you know, how much of a bastard is he really? Like, Does, yeah. does he really care about the, the um, rats? And, and, and I like how 
it like it never touches on the cats having nine lives thing, but it's such an established piece of folklore that when it happens, it doesn't feel it didn't feel to me like a day say Mackinac or a cheat like like oh yeah he's he's got nine lives of course yeah because we've never had any prominent cats in the disc world er- earlier really that have played it. so it's not as if we could say oh hang on well like this earlier cat was killed so yeah it sort of yeah. makes sense so it's just it's it's a nice particularly with I, I did wonder going in where I I've sort of a I have a bit of a low tolerance for like really snide kind of uh sort of like sarcastic characters whose role in the narrative is just sort of to make snide comments and kind of like roll their eyes at the uh naivety of everyone else around them like like to me it just feels like just because you're more pessimistic or cynical doesn't make you more intelligent, you know? Um, right. So I was wondering, and I, I remember like when we done moving pictures, I said Gaspo sort of came across that way at the start, but then he, you know, as his role expanded, I, I enjoyed him more. And I was wondering whether Morris would uh, rub me the wrong way in a similar fashion. But because you have this kind of struggle, uh, he he's going through internally in the book of like, almost like, uh, fighting back his inner catness like that that yeah. level of cynicism that he projects to the outside world and that he does kind of have a you know have a conscience that he's wrestling with it it makes it gives him more of a satisfying journey to go on and just makes him more of a a well-rounded character in general and that culminates really nicely with that that moment with um with dangerous beings and deaths uh, with death and the death of rats and so on the stuff with the fifth elephant is, is an interesting sorry go on you're sorry let's say something uh, it's um, it's funny that I, I agree with almost all of what you say there, but and I, it's weird that like all these moments that you're say describing, like I'm tended to have issues with, but the actual the moment where he trades one of his lies for dangerous beans, that was kind of that was one of those moments that I felt took me out of the book a little bit. I was like, it made me realize, oh, that's right, I'm reading a Yuga Dunt novel because it was one of those moments where, oh, this is where it ties up too nicely. I'm not too big a fan. Like it's not. It's not the worst offender by any means, but it didn't quite work with me. Like, I do love his character the whole way through, but it was just, you know me, I love a good death scene. So, like, like part of me thinks that it wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world if, like, uh, well, I don't know. It's it's up in the air. I don't know. Like, I, I think it would have been interesting to have, like, uh, Dangerous Beans, like, if he'd actually died. You could have drawn some like parallels with like you know the story of this and like religion in general, like dangerous beings being a martyr for change and all that kind of thing, or not even religion. You could do that for a lot of politics as well. So, uh, but but I think I think to to end with this note of progress where the rats kind of integrate themselves into human society, you need someone thoughtful like dangerous beings around. Like it's like how they discuss in in small gods that history changes because Bruto is meant to die as a martyr that would trigger religious wars but instead he he hangs around and um is able to kind of lead his uh the omniums towards a more i suppose reasonable um uh way of way of doing things and i i think likewise like, like dangerous beans is like a really necessary figure for the, the rats to kind of evolve their society um, yeah, but at the same time, the fact that he is in the midst of the like physical struggle against Spider and, and dies for that um, also makes him seem like maybe less of a, like an ivory tower intellectual than he otherwise could have. Like you have Dark Tan and Nourishing and the rest of them and Sardines going off and, you know, 
dismantling the traps and putting the, risking their their lives and then this intellectual fellow who's entirely separate from it um commenting on how they should do things like the uh, having him confront danger uh in that way i i suppose it's sort of necessary for him to kind of like gel with the for him to seem uh seem like a part of that more physical element of their rats lives and their culture but having him around to provide this intellectual framework is necessary too if you're going to believe that they you know that they create this new society with humans and don't just revert to type yeah yeah i mean like i said like i said it's not like the worst defender by any means and i'm not saying oh i hated that it's just it was a moment that took me a little bit out of even and even though like i took out i was like oh that's right i'm reading a kid's story or a young adult's novel sorry um it didn't ruin it for me it was just one of those moments was like oh still okay but you know uh do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so um yeah but like you said i did really like maurice's development as a character and this is why I love doing these podcasts because characters that I remember, I remember very differently than what the way they actually are. Like, um, like we talked about this before with like Granny Weatherwax specifically, how like we always just remember her as being this like invincible character, but then we realize when we're reading it, she's actually quite human. And it was similar with Maurice in that like I just remember him basically being a gasphoed ripoff. But it's good that he has a very constant struggle on the one hand with his own you know, guilt in that he had, he ate one of the the intelligent rats, but also that he is made very vulnerable halfway through the story when Spider starts invading his mind. And, you know, most of the horror kind of stems from him, like mm-hmm. trying to deal with all this stuff. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's really good. So, um, yeah, so I guess we should try and rank this, huh? Wizard the White Tulip also draws comparisons with Fifth Elephant. And I, I just want to say, I, I see what he means in that, like, you have this kind of hybrid culture uh, compromise being reached at the end of this book in a similar way that like the fifth elephants about the, the struggle for kind of Uberval to uh, modernize and, you know, the dwarves finding a way to accommodate uh, modernizing within their own traditions. I think right. going back to what we we're saying about ham and pork, it is a little less subtle here where there's like, I suppose that there's less of a, how would you put it? less of a sense conveyed about like why the rats would want to hang on to their traditions and there's less of a conflict in modernizing you know what i mean like like mm. modernizing here in in the end in the compromise to reach with humans while it's depicted as quite a tricky thing and quite a difficult thing it's also depicted as like wholly and unilaterally positive you know this is what they have to do yeah and and you know, i mean within the within the kind of plot like that's perfectly credible but i suppose it's less intellectually stimulating than something like fifth elephant where you you can understand why the dwarves are like want to hang on to these elements of their traditional culture and why they see kind of modernization as like ank more for cultural imperialism essentially you know and i'm throwing a lot mm. of whatever highfalutin terms around but i mean even if you're not thinking about it in these ways it there, there's just more of a sense of like of of conflict there of uh characters reaching tough decisions done it's it's more straightforward here like Mm. and i think that works like honestly like i i I wouldn't consider this a regressive novel and like it's just it's just a very similar theme a very similar viewpoint viewed through a different lens you know it's it's okay to consider this a very complicated issue that doesn't really have an answer 
And by the same token, it's also okay to consider it in a very hopeful light and say, this is what I would like, this is how I would like it to be. And it's a very smart choice, I think, to convey it that way and then decide this, well, maybe not then decide, but to simultaneously convey it in this way and also be like, this would work as a young adult novel because it is it indulges the kind of themes that we are used to seeing in young adult novels, like something that's very hopeful, very like, you know, you know, let's, let's deal with this issue and just be very positive about it, you know, because the more ambiguity there is, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are, there is ambiguity in a lot of young adult novels, but to tackle that theme in this way, it fits. So yeah, there absolutely is that um, similarity. I think uh, I definitely agree with that, um, but I definitely don't hold it against this book for tackling it in, what could be considered a more simplistic way. So um, I guess we should probably try and rank this, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll just get the list out here. Um, I'm going to give you the, the first option there to kind of throw it where you think, and then I will argue loudly. <laughs> I'd say I'm thinking maybe new number 18 above Teeth of Time, but below Weird Sisters. Oof, really? Yeah. That's quite low. Um, oh, we are getting into such tricky territory because there's lower ones that I'm like, oh, I don't think it would go... You know, there's there's high ones that I'm like, it would definitely be above that. But then lower ones, I'm thinking, I'm not sure if it would be above that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely above Thief of Time. Definitely give you that. Weird Sisters... Yeah, uh, I see. I'm looking at the last hero, and that's what's throwing me because I definitely rank it above the last hero. But yeah, I'm yeah, I, seeing move, I, 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 moving I, pictures, and I'm just like, I don't think it'd be above that. Mm-hmm. Like uh, l- looking at it here, I, I put it above Teeth of Time because we were just talking about uh, Teeth of Time was like a, a kind of very messy book, and this is definitely much neater in its story, uh, much. Um, like clearer in conveying its themes and you know neater in its use of characters and so on uh, but mm-hmm. I, I just suppose I, I just think uh, perhaps because of the like nature of like like the, the uh, readership saying and I, I'll call it how I'm saying it I, I don't want to sound too like you know patronising towards um, children towards younger readers but this is obviously a so much simpler book than a lot of the other Discworld mm-hmm. ones and I just think like the ones I'm looking at above it um you know, all, I don't know, all, all of them tackle ideas um, in maybe like more complex or interesting fashion for me. Uh, like you can maybe make an argument, say it's it's, it's it, it will be putting it below Carpe Jugulum. And I could again say like, or Carpe Jugulum, um, it, it, it's, a, you know, again, it's a neater book than Carpe Jugulum. Um, but like, the, um, does Carpe Jugulum deal with more, interesting and complex ideas um you know and do i, I think what like weird sisters and moving pictures certainly do yeah it's funny like um again this is like where i'm starting to think the order for me is a little bit messed up because i don't think i'd rank it i'd rank it above carpe G- uh, Jigalum, but i don't think i'd rank it above moving pictures mm-hmm. uh, but this is the thing like um i'm not i'm not gonna lie i'm i'd be fairly close to what you'd be saying i definitely above a thief of time and 
Yeah, I could see it around that area. The, I think the only thing that's throwing me is comparing it to Weird Sisters. I'm trying to think, like, is it above or below that? Because Weird, this is, again, Weird Sisters is a great book, but it's just not very complex. Oh, yeah, I uh, don't know. I, I think Weird Sisters um, is more, uh, like, you know, tackles a lot of things about the, the nature of, like, um, the nature, the power of stories again is covered hugely in the, the like Shakespearean subplot, subplot, mm. uh, but also the nature of kind of political power and the idea of like the witches trying to intervene True. with the the uh, felmet, but like knowing there's a sort of limit to how far they can go there that they can't just kind of march up and you know turn them into a frog or something. They need to fight within the system for that system to work. Um, and uh, actually, it's an interesting kind of comparison because obviously. Um, Amazing Morris is a standalone. We never see any of these characters again. Although I mean, it definitely has its own. Ver- no, it doesn't have its bad plans. Doesn't have its own Dibbler, but it does have its own colon and Nobby uh, Doppelpunk oh, yeah. being German for colon. <laughs> um, but uh, Weird Sisters, obviously, these characters will get many other outings. But it's the first one for the Lunker Witches, like we see in Granny mm. Weatherwax and Equal Rights. But she's a kind of odd hybrid Granny Weatherwax Nanny Og figure there. So that. Weird Sisters is the very the one we see Granny as we will get to know her, um, and mm. also we see McGrath and uh, Nanny and like some of the Lankra supporting cast like uh, Varens, Nanny's um, you know brood uh, are all covered here. So like I mean, wh- which ones do you think would have better characters in that regard? Because I think it's a fair enough comparison because neither of them, other than Granny Weatherwax, who has changed a lot from um, Equal Rights, neither of them has the advantage of. Uh, depicting characters that can be built upon from earlier appearances yeah i mean i can't argue against that that's a fairly rock solid argument so and yeah yeah i think i'd be fairly happy then to kind of to kick thief of time off its pedestal then and put in the amazing maurice it's kind of getting to the point though now that like uh, every time that we kick one down i'm always feel like we have to apologize to the books. <laughs> yeah yeah say, well, like you know you're, you're you're all really good like i want to rank all of them really highly is the thing that's my gut instinct and i'm like i'm like 18 that's quite low but then i'm looking it's like yeah but we still got like 50 to go that's more than halfway up you know so mm-hmm. or we have like you know, nearly 50 all together it's, four, so it's, uh, it's like 40 144 okay anyway um it's I'll, yeah it's still quite high so yeah i'm perfectly happy to put that at number 18 then yeah grand new number 18 above teeth time below weird sisters um so yeah uh, that is that is us for today um next month we will be tackling uh night watch which is a lot of people's one of their favorites it'll be very interesting to see whether that's where that's going to figure in our rankings and and what we're going to have to say about that Uh, (laughs) but in the meantime um, thank you very much for listening if you want to get in touch with us between episodes you can find us at Radio Moorpark on on Facebook and on Twitter you can email us radiomoorpark at gmail.com if you like the the podcast please leave us a a rating or review helps helps spread the word helps get some more attention and and, uh, broaden this whole conversation between um people who spend a lot of time reading about a planet carried around by turtles and uh, turtle and elephants uh, like us and like you yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) um i mean look at look at the fucking shower of dopes that are in charge of most powerful countries around the world now do you think any of them have read this world (laughs) and if they had blow their minds the government yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes Um, absolutely thank you very much for listening everybody um this has been 
a ton of fun. This is actually, this was a better book than I remember it being. So that was always a nice surprise. And I'm hoping that the same will be true of Nightwatch next week, because I remember you telling me that you love that book. And I remember, <laughs> I remember having the really weird reaction. And when I told you, it was like, oh, Nightwatch, I remember it being okay. And then you basically yelled at me for about 10 minutes. And then at the end of it, I was like, oh yeah, it probably was a good book then. And I can't remember if that's because you convinced me or you just terrified me into thinking you were right. I just kept hating you until Rose pulled me off. (laughs) But yeah, no, I'm sure that'll be a great one. So I'm looking forward to reading that one. And I guess we will talk about that again next month. Yeah, yeah, just one quick thing before we go. I only like noticed in the last month that we had actually got a, a couple of reviews, which I, I presume we'd get an email or something alerting us, so that's kind of why they went under my radar. But I'd just like to thank uh, Bonovedder, Kata, and Mad Social Scientist for some, some lovely uh, um, reviews that they left on um, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, pretty, Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, Mad Social Scientist has some interesting stuff to say about our, about our, our take on um, Small Gods, and I'd love to continue that conversation if uh, they want to get in touch with us um, on, on social media. In fact, I'd love to continue the conversation with a- any of these people. It's it's really, uh, yeah, it's really lovely, really heartening to uh, to hear people just saying nice things about the podcast. Uh, uh, we enjoy doing it, but you, you never know whether you're shooting it into a void, you know, and mm. um, how much it actually is gripping people. So, that's nice. Yeah, I feel warm <laughs> and fuzzy now. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and on that warm and fuzzy note, like a friendly rat, um, we will leave you for this month. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. See you next month. Yeah.